is another iRaw podcast. One, two, three. There are three beagles in here. One, two, three. All three of you. Why are you all licking me? What's going on? You guys are just following me around. I've got Ophelia. I've got Sassy Tootsie Roll. And my parents' rescue beagle, Fiona, is staying with us for a little while, too. Oh, hi. You was talking about you, Sass. They're all here in my office. Three senior female beagles. Three hounds. But you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking if we got one more, we could do like a reenactment of the Golden Girls. What do you think, you guys? Don't you think? Beagles, what do you think? Hello, hounds, I'm talking to you. I don't even get a bay or a bark anymore. Let's go get another one from the shelter. One more, one more old girl. And we can all eat pie together. Wait, am I the old girl? My name is Katya. I believe loving an animal is one of the most available portals for self-healing in the whole world. And I wanna be here for you wherever you are on that journey. Welcome to the animal that changed you. Hi, animal lovers. Welcome back to the show. How is everyone doing today? You know what I wanted to tell you all? I'm a dog trainer. I would call myself more a dog coach now, like a life coach of all things dog. Is that a thing? I don't know. A dog counselor, maybe? Can we go with that? What I'm saying is I don't just want to talk about training dogs to do what we want them to do when we want to do it. I believe we change in tandem with our dogs and that we both need to make shifts and adjustments and change together. So why am I telling you all this? All this to say, if you have an issue with your dog or your foster dog or your mom's dog, if you have a dog situation going on and you want some help, you can email me at theanimalthatchangedyou at gmail.com. That's theanimalthatchangedyou at gmail.com. Hit me up. Tell me what's going on. Tell me the question you have. Send me a picture and I will absolutely respond to you. One of those or maybe several of those questions I will read here on the show and I will answer for you live here on the show. And that is something I really want to do. And I think it's exciting because I just want to see pictures of your dogs and help people and and their animals bond. And I would feel really honored to get to do that. Got a really beautiful review from BJA68. That's the name on the, on the, the author of this review. And it's soul food in podcast form. That's the title, guys. It's so beautiful. Okay, so BJ said, this pod is absolutely beautiful and so special. A must listen for anyone who loves animals and sees how precious and priceless they are to us human beings. I'm overcome with emotion when I listen, and it's so heartwarming. Katya is an angel of a human. Oh, that's really nice. Thank you so much for this review. You guys, reviews help so much. Ratings help so much. They, all podcasts need them, and they mean so much. So thank you, BJ868. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I will keep trying to bring you all the animal love I've got. And that brings me to today. We've got awesome guests from CARE. CARE is an organization that is totally dedicated to amplifying BIPOC voices using narratives, research, and community-centered investments in the interest of human and animal well-being. I mean, they're really here to bring it. I'm going to take you right to the episode with James Evans, who is the CEO of CARE, and Jennifer Evans, who is the COO. Just to note that Jennifer doesn't come in until about 12 minutes into the episode, but oh, she's worth waiting for. And you know what? This organization has been worth waiting for, too. This idea of starting an organization that understands that people need to be involved in the decisions that are being made in their own communities 
I find to be not only what is happening right now, but just so the answer, just so the solution. And in order to move this mountain of how we treat animals and how we look at animals, it needs to be led by people who were serving. I just love how you're helping animals by paying attention to people. I'm very much geeking out about this organization because there's nothing like it. I'm going to stop talking now and I want to hear about care and how things are going and the animals that have changed you and anything you want to share with us. I started a mass comms business in 1999, grew the business. Eventually, the Humane Society of the United States knocked it on door for a large statewide project in the Gulf of Mexico. The project went really well. It was focused on underserved communities that were not spaying and neutering. And it struck me because that's where I'm from, an underserved community. And it, it struck me how absent underserved people were from animal welfare. Animal welfare often has to hire folks outside of the field. They don't have to. They choose to hire folks from outside the field because folks inside the bubble are generally not from underserved communities. I was sharing community wisdom that I just assumed was common sense common sense about people of color, common sense about underserved communities, that blossomed into HSUS and Illum creating Pets for Life. So it was a key architect of the Pets for Life program that semi-blossomed in itself. All projects for the good, for the state, for the city, we were bringing that to all of our clients, including our animal welfare clients, inciting them on communities that have pets, of course, that animal welfare is incredibly disconnected from 2019, Chase of Merrill from Life of Riley Spring Point knocked on the door and said, I've looked at your portfolio of work in and outside of animal welfare. And she was struck both by our sort of constant insistence that people of color and marginalized communities should be represented in the mass comms work that we were doing. But behind the scenes, we were always advocating for those folks to actually be at the table. So she asked us if we would, you know, create care, um, create an organization that we ended up naming care um, that was focused on those BIPOC and marginalized communities. And it felt like moments after we had care up, had our legal papers, George Floyd, Amar Arbery, and all of these other insane things happen that's brought a lot of attention to underserved communities. But I think it's important to note that care did not come from George Floyd. Amar Arbery and all of these other insane televised murders by law enforcement. We were in existence beforehand, and those things just amplified our existence. I think that's important to know. We had been constantly before that trying to get BIPOC voices to the table. It's exciting now that we're actually able to do it thanks to sponsors like Maddie's Fund and Petsmart Charities and Springpoint. It's just it's amazing. I mean, we're having, we cry weekly, I think. Sometimes daily, the people we're able to bring to the table now, unlike before. I am listening to you with a full heart, but I do have a voice in my head going like, get your shit together, because I'm about to cry. We cry all the time. The reason it makes me emotional immediately, so I'm a, I'm a Cuban Jew, I'm a Juban. I joined the South LA Animal Shelter in 2007 as a volunteer, and I chose that shelter because I'm Latina and there was a big Spanish-speaking population. But to your point, 
James, all the literature, for example, that was written about how to take your pet home or any services that were provided by the shelter were in English translated into Spanish, which is very different than talking to people who are Latinos from the many beautiful countries and making materials that meet them where they are with how they live, their cultures, their beautiful gifts. And I was always frustrated by how we were almost immediately making it easy for them to surrender an animal or not be able to adopt an animal. The truth is, I always felt very frustrated that we were not making it at all accessible or empowering, in my opinion, for that community to love animals the way they wanted to love animals. From resources to just how we were speaking to them or relating to them or the materials that were available to them. Everything that was being put out there was written by people who were not Latinos. How do we begin to move this mountain, including people who we have made sweeping generalizations about? How do you propose to bring people in? It is a big question, but I think the one thing that you said that to me is striking is that your privilege is twofold. You have had a privilege to choose how to present. Your bigger privilege is the choice that's already been made for you, which is to assume that you're white. The choosing is one thing, how you present, but no matter what your choice is, even in your silence, the choice has already been made that you're smart, that you have some value above mine, above Jen's, above your Latino comrades. That's the essence of the problem. The narrative is so strong. It almost doesn't matter what you say. Your proposed story is already out ahead of you. And so that's one of the focuses of care actually is changing the narrative. How do we bring people in? Primarily bringing people in by elevating narratives. Those people that we're meeting in Atlanta that are already doing their version of community-focused animal care, we're only able to support them and help them with technical services and fund them because we're elevating their narrative to donors. And so that's been a constant thing for me in animal welfare. And the only reason Pet for Life got off the ground, to be frank, is I made a point of lifting those narratives from those communities that we were doing outreach in to senior level managers at HSUS to see that there were 600 people in line at six o'clock in the morning to get a 10 or $15 vaccination shot. Not only does it illustrate the depth of poverty, but it also illustrates the depth of care. You're up in the morning in the rain and the heat for a $15 shot. And so you have to care about your pet to do that work. Totally. We had so many people at South LA who would come in weeping to surrender an animal because they were getting evicted or their landlord changed their mind or a situation that was beyond their control. I'll be really honest here and I'll be conservative with my number. 75% of that time that animal was found on the street and that person took that animal in. Exactly. I couldn't believe it. And if you weren't at the shelter and if you weren't talking to people, and I love being at an animal shelter, it's some strange lining up of my mental wiring, but I love the animal shelter. I just love those animals. I love being there. And I love the people. I love being with people there. But that idea that somebody opened their door to this stray dog and now we're mad that they are getting evicted. How is this happening? So that idea of narrative, which I I know you have a whole division on, which is so powerful as a storyteller, it's what I I think is one of the most exciting things you're doing. It's going to make a long-term impact. Yeah. 
that and extreme, and we don't call those people rescuers. And so that's what's interesting. The universe always works in, in interesting ways, right? So yesterday I got an email from a person from an indigenous tribe that we're working with. We're talking about, you know, some PR things going on and what we'd like to do to help them. And there's pushback from the tribal community. And I understand that. But in speaking to journalists, I think there people don't understand. So I'll share a quote. She she asked me, she said, how do you do the work and stay true to your culture and yet give the white man what he wants? And it really just sunk in. I still, I mean, it's only been 24 hours since we talked about it. So you asked how, you know, do you bring people in? And, and I think, you know, the big answer is just having trust and faith. And if people could just take that with them, there wouldn't be so many barriers in adoption applications. There wouldn't be added fees if you're going to surrender an animal. There'd be less judgment. I think if people can learn to accept that the answers are going to be different than what animal welfare has typically done in the past 50 years, if you accept that, the solutions will be easy. But it's so hard, I think, for this field to get out of this like silo that they've been in. And, and a part of me understands that. But I think there's a, another part that we, I'll put myself in that field, have to admit what we've been doing clearly isn't working. The shelters are still full. I mean, I find it very interesting that during COVID, the shelters were cleared, right? All we saw were pictures of empty kennels, and it was amazing. And yet now as COVID is full was slowing down, the shelters are full again. And I have to ask them, why is that? What happened during COVID that allowed you to free your shelters up? And now all of a sudden they're full again. So it's clearly we as a field, we're doing something wrong. And what if we looked at the people that we've been pushing away for so long and looked at them for answers? Do I think they have all the answers? No, but there is a massive gap, just intentional barrier that's put up so that we don't ask BIPOC communities, what do you think? Like, is this flyer, does it even make sense in, it, in in your language? Like we had some translator translate it. Like, did you see the ad? Oh, wait, we put it at a gas station. Oh, we don't even have a car. So that didn't make any sense. There, there are things that James and I have seen more so James, like during the course of our jobs with animal welfare, where we're just, these are just basic things that if you had gone and asked a community member, how can we help you? What do you need? we would have, I think, solved a lot of problems already. I have found animal welfare as a whole, at least the shelter system, there's a lot of red tape, like a lot of resistance to move. And I understand that it's a municipal system and I get that government stuff to be real, <laughs> to be a, a political, I'm not a political science major, obviously, because, you know, government stuff isn't a term, but it just moves so slow and there there is so much resistance. I was at South LA probably till about 20. 13, 2014. Towards the end, I started to do something with a good friend of mine named Christy Schilling, who's a wonderful and tireless animal advocate, uh, where we would sit outside. We had like a little table. I did surrenders and she did adoptions. And we would just chat. Anyone coming in with an animal would stop to me and I'd be like, what's going on? And what is it that you need? And just collect data and try to help. I remember at first, one of my first questions was like, oh, can you post them on adoptedpet.com? And everyone was like, I don't have a computer. I don't have internet. Soon that question fell away and I felt like a big idiot. What an assumption to make. For me to try to help someone, the first thing I asked them it requires them to explain to me that they don't have access was something that I, I wish I didn't have to feel <laughs> the mistake along the way. 
but I'm so glad that I did. It was important and freeing to understand how more people live and not assume everyone has my life. I think that there is a great element of that in animal welfare at large, this assumption that everyone lives the same way. There are communities that don't have traditional services, and that's intentional. What do you mean by that? I'd love to. I'd love for the audience to know, and I want to make sure I know too. There's always been an orchestrated depreciation of where people of color live. Once this country, both North and South, had to come to terms with African-Americans being free, but this also includes Irish-Americans and Italian-Americans and Jewish-Americans. Ghetto, after all, is a Jewish term. It is not an African-American term. The idea that the elites have sculpted out, which is exactly what they did, places in the country where they could live and not interface with the undesirables is completely intentional. The Brooklyn Bridge was designed to be narrow on purpose so that buses couldn't go from Manhattan into Brooklyn to bring brown people into Brooklyn. There are many, many stories about the way the country has been physically orchestrated so that people of color are isolated and depreciated and marginalized so that mostly white people in this country can take advantage of the full fruits of the country. So then there becomes a rush to become white. Italian-Americans, Jewish-Americans, Irish-Americans have chosen to uplift who they are dependent upon whether or not they're more or less acceptable into that genre of white. And it's likely to continue happening as more Spanish-speaking Latinas become part of the community. You can choose. You can choose to present yourself as Latina or you can present yourself as white. That will be the choice 10 years from now. This whole idea that white America is disappearing assumes that Latin America doesn't want to assimilate into white. But history shows is that anyone that has the opportunity to be white has chosen white because being white means that you get to inherit what the country's full intention was. People of color who live in communities of color bear the brunt of depreciated services, less community policing. The police are not there to make sure that you are safe. The police are there to punish you for crimes committed or crimes presumably committed, less fire department services, poor education. 80% of the schools in Baltimore City and Brown neighborhoods don't have air conditioning in the summer, and they have very little heat in the winter. There's nothing socially calculable, including COVID, where people of color don't suffer disproportionately than others. And anyone listening that is white that would disagree, I'll ask you, why do you live where you live? You have very likely chosen to live somewhere that is not next to, to a community of color or as far away from a community of color as possible because of the inherent benefits of that. When white folks start buying up cheap homes in brown and black neighborhoods, then you can tell me that we're all square. There are $500,000 size homes that you could buy for $50,000 here in Baltimore, but you would have to have black neighbors. When that starts happening, then we can, we, I will agree that the, the playing field is level, but the fact that we are buying $500,000 homes that are really of value in the 50s just because we want our kids to go to the best schools, we want to be safe. It's all connected to race, racism, slavery, and anti-brownism as much as anything else. What excites me the most about animal welfare 
and being at the shelter is how it's a small microcosm for all the issues. But no one has ever articulated all the issues in a way that I understand so very deeply as you just did. And it is not your job to explain it to me or to anybody. I just want to say you have a way with words, which is a special thing to make connective points, not just make sense, but make the points connect. I appreciate that. I think for some people, particularly inside of my own (laughs) circle of primarily people of color, I would imagine that most folks are like, why the hell are you making this stance here? You know, why inside of animal welfare? One, I think everyone should make a stance where they stand. It's interesting that animal welfare is essentially unchanged since it's birth in the 1800s. Animal welfare predates child labor laws, child protection laws, rights for women, rights for people of color. The only people who would have had time to participate in animal protection were people of high wealth indexes. And it's essentially the same now. You're talking about women, for the most part, who have their industrious husbands that are raping and pillaging the country. And the offset of that is the do-gooder space. I'm not going to help the slave I see on the street, but that horse that's tied to a cart, I'm going to save that horse. That has been the nature of animal welfare since its inception. It is the nature of animal welfare now. When Best Friends made its Black Lives Matter statement several months ago, there was a lot of chatter on Facebook that was saying, look, stick to the animals. Stick to the animals. It is the same exact thing. The the founder of the ASPCA, very wealthy, erudite man. Henry Berg, right? Yeah. I read his story, which makes me like a super nerd, but yeah, very wealthy white man. Very wealthy. And he was actually good friends with several anti-slave folks. He believed in anti-slavery. He saw slaves on the street. And even with that, it was his trip to Russia where he saw the treatment of forces that moved him to start an animal welfare movement. And I just think it's striking. That shows you so well how, in contrast, the Black and Brown person that is lifting and picking their weight in cotton every day in public. People see this. And then you see a horse tied to a cart and you pick the horse as the thing you're going to advocate for. What we're trying to do is not say to animal welfare that your compassion is misplaced, but take that compassion and expand it because these marginalized communities that we are from, participate in, and love, they're all connected to animals. So you can't say that you're about saving animals if you're not willing to participate in the lives of the people that have them. Because animals, for the most part, are not roaming free. They're connected to individuals. And I don't think animals should be in a shelter anyway. When you think about the enormous size of homes without animals, it is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times bigger than the amount of animals we're trying to place. If I was selling vacuum cleaners and there were a million (laughs) homes without vacuum cleaners and I had to sell 7,000 vacuum cleaners, I would figure that out. To me, the demand for companionship and the number of animals that are find themselves in shelters, God forbid the number that find themselves being euthanized, is the social and racial gap awareness. And no more than that. It's not about transporting animals across the country. It's not about spay and neuter. It's about the gap that we have in this country between social classes and race, because we don't like brown people and we hate poor people. I do also think that 
we see our pets primarily, animals overall as something to dominate, but pets primarily, I think we see them as extensions of ourselves. And as a dog trainer and an animal person to my core, I want to say we get, I think as people, we get confused. They are extensions of ourselves. They're extensions of how we talk to ourselves and how we treat others. They're extensions of our values and our overall attitude and behavior. But we, I think so many people think animals are an extension of their status. They're meant to do something else, to to look like something, to appear like something. And I feel like sometimes that is part of that gap between the number of homes that don't have pets to all those animals in the shelter just needing someone to take them in. Meaning we put so much on the superficial like breed or look or size or to say something about us instead of the personality, the individual. I just feel like it's a paradigm shift. We get it wrong. And if we got it right, those animals in the shelter, they would have a foster. And if we had an incentive for people to foster and maybe free classes on how to foster, which I will do for anybody who will listen because my husband's tired of hearing me talk about fostering. I truly believe, I watch my young children. I think we grow up loving animals, considering animals. And that is for all people. I love what you said. They extend your compassion. I feel like that's actually where we begin. If we shifted that paradigm and made it about who we are, I think those animals would not be in behind bars. I think that's true, but we have to suspend our judgment. We ultimately, I think in many, many cases, the way the partnership, if you will, there's someone in New York that sees her chihuahua as a partner. It's almost an accessory to her clothing, to her lifestyle. But then in Alabama, someone might see a bloodhound as an extension of his love for sport. We place a judgment and say, it's okay for a senior to want a pet just for companionship. And it's okay if we simply want a pet in the house to sensitize the child to having another creature in the home. But what we won't accept is this guy from Alabama who likes the outdoors, who likes the hunt. There's something wrong with him. We're not sure we want to adopt him because he wants to thingify the animal. In essence, most of us are thingifying and making a partnership with our animal by some sort of choice. I will need to hear that again and again. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but even me who's in it, I'm really glad you you said that. I think that is the problem is animal welfare is made up from mostly, and I say animal welfare, I mean animal welfare is leadership primarily, is made up with a certain group of people who see animals as a partnership in their lives a certain way, and they don't leave enough space for how animals play a different partnership role with other people. So if an African-American person from, in quotes, a dangerous neighborhood says, hey, I would really like to adopt this dog because I want protection in my house. I'm not going to adopt you because dogs shouldn't be used as a security mechanism. In fact, there's nothing wrong with that as long as that person is loving that pet. When the stronger comes to the door, that dog's value is amplified into that house and that homeowner is going to appreciate that and give love to that animal. We have thingified pets for decades. It's the only real reason they were ever domesticated because they had a use. But animal welfare has decided that its mainstream use for the pet is more acceptable than other people's desires for a pet. And so that's where the judgment comes in. That's where the euthanasia comes in. That's where the overcrowded sheltering comes in. We essentially want to see ourselves come into the door for fostering and adoption. And if we don't see ourselves come into the door, then the other person is someone we have to be concerned about. 
have this like flow chart I wrote down <laughs> as we're talking, it's going it's very complicated and that reminds me of high school and doodling. Saviorism is an issue in animal welfare that I think is accompanied and judgment as a result, but it kind of guides a lot of things I think that have gone wrong in the industry and there's got to be a way out of it. I think it's interesting. I say that this is as a person that is adopted. I think of a shelter as an orphanage and there are no orphanages in this country. Why is that? And I think when we start to equate like those kinds of things that we're doing in animal welfare and think of it in terms of a human, a child, maybe people would think of it differently. I think people are shocked sometimes when they hear James or, or Mike say like the goal is is to get rid of shelters altogether. We actually don't want an orphanage in every city where lots of babies are hanging out and spending a lot of time. And I don't think people think about that enough. James talks about it frequently at the fostering program. Like what is the difference between the fostering program with children and the fostering program with animals? And I think what the ultimate goal in both spaces should be adoption, not fostering. Not that fostering is wrong. I think animal welfare has a lot of band-aids they market. If we focused more on the long-term solutions, which are ambitious as a, a potential funder told us that our ideas were too ambitious, but hundreds and hundreds of years of systemic policies and barriers and rules and fines are ultimately going to create an ambitious answer and solution. And so well, I think I get on its face why people might say that sounds really complicated. Can you minimize like what you want to do? But at the same time, we're the only people out there that are saying, listen, it's going to take this, 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 and this. And for people, again, to have faith. Oh, you know what? You're right. We haven't tried this before. Let, let's try this. hundred percent. I have lots of thoughts about it. I think it's very interesting. How many hours does an animal spend inside a shelter in a kennel by itself? I really want to know. Like my guess is 18 hours, maybe more, right? Way more. Yeah. I mean, some of them don't get out at all, it, depending on volunteers and how much time they have to walk them. For a shelter or rescue to put on their application, how many hours will the dog be left alone? My yes. assumption is way less time than they would be in the shelter. Yes. So it isn't your goal to get rid of the animal. And like it, that, I keep wanting to say that back to the rescues, the rescues that have denied us for, you know, dogs in the past. Um, isn't your goal to get that animal out of the foster person care that you have lined up and find a permanent home for that animal. Because if it is, you should be working with people and asking questions and having conversations. But if it isn't, if you think you are the ultimate you know, caregiver or your fosterer is, then, then don't put an ad out. Don't ask me for money. Don't say we need you to come and visit. Don't, it's just, it's a, a really mixed messaging kind of system. Interesting because there's a call going on and they're talking about how there's a, a huge problem and we need to get adopters to come into the shelters now. And there's a problem. And, and I think after COVID, I'll say this, you know, being both in and outside of animal welfare, People are tired of being denied. People are tired of not hearing back. We did a survey at the beginning of CARE where we asked as many people as we could if they were ever adopted and why. And the number one reason was they didn't know nobody ever got back to them. And as a communications person, that's a huge failure. If people could look at the sheltering system as like a retail experience to me, I think it would be more successful. People that work at Walmart, they don't, well, some people might, but you know, you come into a store, you're trying to have a positive interaction. You want to sell your goods and you're happy and you're in a good disposition, right? And then you get people that come into a shelter who might judge somebody like James that walks in and maybe has a hooded sweatshirt on and he's got gym shorts. And there's an attitude that somehow we've allowed the front lines of customer service in this industry to judge and act however they see fit. 
And nobody's really talking about why that's happening and why it's poor customer service and why customer service is at the heart of actually being a successful shelter, which would be getting rid of you, your existence. That itself is like threat of losing your position, right? And some of these shelters have million dollar budgets. There would be other positions. There would be so many other creative, innovative, out of the box positions for ways to support people who are fostering, ways to support the community, new resource center. I mean, there it's endless. There would, you just shift the job. There is no loss of job. Jennifer, James, I want to hear so much more that you have to say, but first we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey friends, I know I'm your non-agro animal person, but I still got to do right by the animals. So you probably know where I'm going with this. Today, I just want to encourage you to check out CARE's website. It is careawo.org. AWO stands for Animal Welfare Organization, by the way. So that's careawo.org. Check out more of what they have been talking about today. Read up on what they're doing, the amazing, amazing work that they're up to, and consider hitting that nice little yellow orangey button and making a donation if you can. Or just be their friend and their follower and continue to support their work. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Animal That Changed You. I'm here with Jennifer and James from CARE. I know that this show is called The Animal That Changed You. And like, I haven't even asked you, do you have animals? Do they change you? Do they sleep in your bed? Like, I want to, I do want to know. I just want to make one quick point, which is, and maybe it's because I'm like you, Jen, and I have a lot of faith and I believe, but I think COVID, people running to the shelters and the shelters being empty and people not being able to get a dog. I think it's easy to say like, oh, we're so selfish as humans. We want it. Now we want a companion. We're bored. We want our kids to have. I don't think that's what happened. I think people have very busy lives and they work and they have been told so often that it's so hard when you adopt a dog and there's going to be this transition time and it's not fair if you go to work and it's not. So what happened was people were like, oh, Uh, this is an opportunity to actually try to have a pet. I actually think people have been wanting to take an animal from a shelter for a long time. And whether they've been rejected or they have bought into the story that it's not a good idea for numerous reasons, they believed it. And then COVID happened and it was like, oh, I can try that now where they could have tried it all along. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's multiple answers to that question but my suspicion is based on what I know happens in successful adoptions is that when you're in a panic, you go from having a restrained process to then a complete open adoption process. And, and maybe even you're surrendering those conversations. So those conversations that you might normally be having about what the breed needs, what this specific dog needs outside of its breed, that time is kind of suspended. And it is essentially you're saying, we have no staff. We have no one here to take care of this animal. Everyone come and grab an animal. The data is pretty clear in that anyone you're adopting to, whether or not you're buying the dog or adopting the dog, conversations about what the breed needs, it creates the sticking point with the animal in the house. And that's essentially what we want to do with care centers is support people on the ground because animal welfare is an incredibly top-heavy thing. If you'd imagine it like a very pointy cone on the ground at the tip where people and animals actually live, there is virtually no support whatsoever. All of the money is at the executive level, is at HSUS, is at at the A, is at best friends at this high brain trust level. And then it dips down a little bit into the shelter level. So at the sheltering level, you know, you're talking $7 billion a year repeatedly put into the system. That top level at the Maddie's funds, at the HSUS's, at the A's, 
you're talking hundreds of million dollars in thinking and in salaries and in solutions. Some of those trickle down into this $7 billion industry of sheltering, but almost none of those resources, almost none of that thinking goes inside of people's homes. I love that the care centers are going to be, I know you you really specified in the website and you're getting the message out that it's not necessarily a building. It could be community outreach or transport services. It's going to be fluid. It's going to be flexible because it's responding to need. It's, that is correct. It's intuitive, which is basically with the opposite of what the shelter system is right now. <laughs> but I mean, the shelter system, I think, had a connection to a world that used to exist. It solved for worst case scenarios, which is taking unhomed animals and drowning them in rivers. That's ultimately what was happening. You're solving for the worst case scenario, which means you're also expecting the worst case scenario. And it doesn't help that large organizations like the A and the ASPC and HSUS are constantly running ads, which are constantly talking about animal abuse because that's how they generate their wealth. And not only are they sending that message out to grandma who is sitting on the sofa wishing she could do something to help, so she sends in her dues every year, but it's also sending that message out to potential animal welfare workers. It's the signal, look, There's all this abuse happening in the world. You have to go join this club that is an anti-abuse club. And so the biggest players with the biggest wallets are constantly reinforcing a message suggesting that 100% of what's going on is abusive when really it's 7%. And instead of using those unbelievable resources they have to actually support people on the ground, to create a paid foster system, to actually make sure people who need food have food, to make sure the people that need access to care actually get it. Rather, this industry is spending an enormous amount of money on elevating a very, very, very small part of a narrative, which then creates a reaction to that narrative, which means everyone coming into the shelter is a potential abuser, as opposed to a potential lover of animals. It affects the staff too. I will say that it, my personal experience with shelter staff has been, they are my favorite people and they truly love animals. They didn't get into this business to euthanize animals in the back room. They got into this business because they care and they connect. We're not even fostering and nurturing the people who work there, why they're there. They're special skills. They're beautiful, special skills. We could be using all of their skills on the ground to nurture people in their homes. But the reality is for the amount of abuse that is happening, that is real, there are probably just as many animals being euthanized. We've created this rescue system that brings animals into a system that was more dangerous than where we captured them from. And so not only is an incredibly expensive. And by the way, just on the expense side, I have been saying this for a year now, it's incredibly frustrating to see the judgment of people struggling in social economic conditions coming to the shelter. I want to adopt, but I don't have food or I don't have that help. The sheltering system itself, private and municipal, are all getting their sources of income from somewhere else. We're, we're all beggars trying to get someone else to give us money. But when someone else comes in the door and says, I want to rescue on a micro level, but I need food and support, we frown at that person. We don't want to adopt yeah. them. The irony is insane. So I don't think that 3 million animals a year 
are being purposely killed outside of a shelter system. There are people that are neglecting their animals. There are certainly some sadistic people. I think there are probably more animals inside the shelter system that are being put to death than there are outside of the shelter system that are being put to death on purpose. Even if it was even, there's something wrong. I really think it, at $7 billion, we took that $7 billion out of sheltering and put it on the ground. It would change everything. everything. It would change. And as you said, which was expand your compassion. We would expect that that is a literal plan for expanding your compassion because we would treat animals different. We would treat each other different. We would have all these points of relationship and connection. It would be an actual conduit, an actual conduit of compassion. Think about the major metropolitan cities in this country, Houston, Atlanta, Baltimore, Detroit. If you had $700 million to put into all of those cities to bring sheltering to the ground, if you were to take $700 million in each major city and spread that sheltering knowledge across communities, you would solve for an enormous amount. Everything from access to care to behavioral training. And that's what we want to see. And is it ambitious? Sure. We're like a PT boat trying to turn a destroyer around. You should be ambitious. Nonprofits are big dreamers and it should be that way because this is a big problem. It requires a big, ambitious dreamer on the other side. I try to look at animals by personality, character, individual, less than breed. But I do think a lot of what you were saying about helping people understand animals' needs and letting people messily try to take care of animals and get involved. It's going to be messier. It's going to be unpredictable. It's also going to change how we interact with each other as well as with animals. You're not doing one small thing. You're doing a lot. So I'm glad that you have big dreams. Do you have an animal that has been the muse and catalyst for all of this? Is there an animal sleeping in between? (laughs) I'll let Jen answer that first. (laughs) Uh, Well, I just, I just had to attend to the, the, um, the animal. He was barking a lot. We have a a German shepherd. His name is Guapo. Guapo means handsome in Spanish. Uh, Never in my life was I like, you know what I want? I want a huge German shepherd. (laughs) After we got married, the kids wanted a dog. James wanted a dog. We started a search and actually we landed on a dog named Skipper first. It was at the local shelter and I applied for the dog and the kids are so funny. Every day they ask me, where's the dog? Where's the dog? Are we getting the dog? Are we bringing the dog? And then my Andrew would whisper in my ear, Skipper. And I was like, oh, and it broke my heart because I knew that we didn't hear back after two days. I knew we didn't get the dog. So a week went by and I remember Andrew asked and I said, buddy, I, I don't think we got the dog. Oh, Andrew's my son. Skipper was the, the black and white dog that we had chosen. Yeah, but I told him why. And, um, you know, I said, well, and my guess is because we rent our house and that's looked down upon and we have two kids. There's a, you know, are your kids under five? I mean, at the time it was two years ago, I guess. So, you know, Andrew was eight then. So I said, those are my two guesses, buddy. And we don't have a big yard. We have a townhouse. We have a, a yard and it's fenced in, but you know, those are three strikes against us. Fast forward, we had a client out in Santa Paula and we were in the shelter doing a tour. And there was a dog that was like quarantined into like the side of the place that was being renovated. And it was this little baby German shepherd who was so adorable, but 
I know myself and I'd be, I didn't look at any animals because I knew I'd find a way to fly them all home. And James, I think had, he, I don't know. I felt like you looked at Guapo and there was like a bond. So long story short, turns out that the dog had just been surrendered by their owners and that they, the shelter said that the dog had parvo. And the family that uh, surrendered the dog said they couldn't afford that. And so they said they could keep the dog. Uh, what we found out on the side is that the shelter was raising money while shaming these people for surrendering the dog. And there was so much backlash on Facebook about how dare them. I can't believe them. Why would you even take a dog in if you can't afford the dog? And what the saddest thing for me was that the husband finally chimed in and he pleaded with the general public to stop saying such horrible things about his wife, that she was pregnant and under a lot of stress and she loves the dog. And it's it's been one of the hardest things we, we, we decided to do. And can you please stop saying these things? While we were in the process of adopting the dog, you know, we were both like, this is crazy. Like, give the dog back. Like, we'll cover the cost of whatever the, the dog needs. They basically got back to us and said they didn't want the dog anymore. And so we did get Guapo and brought him home. And he's been amazing. Like I, like I said, I never wanted a big dog. To me, they're just like, they're big. They're scary. I'm only 5'4". And, and I'm, I'm a shorter person than uh, the average. Did Guapo come before care? Yes. Wow. Like right before. I believe that German shepherds are basically people in dog costumes. If my husband and I get into a fight, I'm like, guess what? I will end up with a German shepherd and I will be fine. Like that is <laughs> that is a threat that's been made before. I love that you ended up with him. Guapo's part of the logo. It's the snout. That's Guapo. Really like sweet eyes. There's something, I, I just, I don't, I think I had an assumption that big dogs like required lots of energy and they were rough and whatever, but he is probably... It's so funny. He is drastically different around James than he is with me and even strange children. Like he loves kids. He sees a kid, his tail wags, and he knows to gently go up to them and he usually looks them in the face. And so our next door neighbor has a three-year-old. It's so funny. And he always, he's very calm around her. His ears are down and he licks her in the face. And she's always like, he yicks me. He yicks me. Because he's being a little sheppy sheppy. I love that. He loves his daddy. I say it's humbling and not in the cliche type of way. I've had dogs my whole life, but, and mostly German Shepherds too, but I feel like Guapo is, because it's with Jen and the kids, it's just, I, I, Guapo is the, the glue in the house. I'm always looking at him. And I've said this many times, like I'm trying, my goal in life is to be more like Guapo, to be more trusting of people, to be more forgiving, to be more playful, to let things go. And I just think Guapo's better than us. Like, I think that there's something in, in, in animals in general, I'm a wildlife photographer. Like, and when I say they're better than us, I don't mean, you know, I hate people. I, I love people. But I think people should see and understand that animals are a little more elevated than where we are. Yeah. Um, not that we should hate one another. We could learn from them. We learn from them. Animals know how to stay in the moment. Nature in general stays in the moment. We're too smart for our own good. So we're always looking for problems where problems don't exist. He has this question of how, you know, whether or not the dog should be outside. My answer is that we should be outside. <laughs> we are the ones that should be outside more. Is the dog outside too much? The question is, are we inside too much? I love it. Do you think you would have started care without Guapo first coming into your life? Yeah, Guapo is additive and I think informative. 
but care came out of an immense amount of pain and disappointment. I can't explain to you what it feels like to be handcuffed in front of your child for no reason, being chased by the police for absolutely no reason. So I think care comes out of an informed experience. And, you know, Jen brings something to that that I don't have in that she's been adopted. And so her new awareness of what it means to be a woman of color is different. And so we have people and staff that are LGBTQ. And so they're bringing all of those lived experiences. And so once, once you have all of this, this cauldron of amazing lived experience and that gaze turns towards animal welfare, you can easily see what's missing. It, we are missing. We are missing. Guapo is not missing. There's plenty of guapo in animal welfare. What's missing is the lived experience of marginalized people. I would like to believe he ended up there because he knew that, like you say, he was better. He had an instinct and he was like, here we go. I'd like to believe that because I'd bet money that it's been in you and Jen all along and and you have found yourselves here because of what you're meant to do. Agreed. I'm sorry that I don't have the right words. I don't know the right words to say that are appropriate for the experiences you've had. I'm grateful that you're willing to share them. Thank you for being vulnerable enough to share your truths. Not just your work, but your truths. So please tell us how we can support you, find you, follow you. Where can everybody listening heap love and donations onto CARE? Our website is careawo.org and the donation button is not hard to find. But I, I think people in the audience should know that I think this is important that organizations led by people of color are not donated to in the same proportion. Organizations led by people of color has 74% less unrestricted funds than organizations that do not. In in other words, a white woman who starts an organization focused on Black male health is likely to raise more money than a Black male focused on Black male health. That's how extreme things are. So we need giving that's proportional to the absence of giving. And we haven't received that yet. I mean, we've, we've had lots of, I think, very lovely gifts that we appreciate, but I think it's going to be up to individuals that really hear us to understand, to level the playing field and spaces of color. It may require that you not donate any longer to the other organizations that you donate to because they're fine. I, I would just add that we are about to add a membership division to care. So it will be really soon. We're working on the final details, but it's going to be pretty amazing. So I think that is, in addition to donating, you can be a member and it'll come in different forms and it'll be involve all sorts of different things. We're finalizing the app that'll be involved with that. Um, but we're, we're excited to kind of collect an army of people that are ready to equitably solve the problem. And it's not going to be confined to only people that have this background or that only have behavior training. It, it is for everybody because there's a space for everybody, no matter what you do. Thank you for, for sharing and telling us your stories and for the work you do and for giving so much. I'm very grateful you were here. Oh, thank, you. thank you so much. You all were awesome. 
Thank you all so much for tuning into The Animal That Changed You, a weekly podcast that features extraordinary people talking about the extraordinary animals that changed their lives. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a review. Search for us on Instagram at The Animal That Changed You or on Twitter at T-A-T-C-Y podcast and tell your friends. And if you've got a story about an animal that changed your life, tell me about it. Message me, tag me. I would love to hear. I appreciate you. I love your animals and I'll see you next time. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com.